Hello there. Uh, just before the episode kicks off, uh, further along uh, in, in the episode, uh, I reference uh, modern slavery. And um, I went and looked at the numbers having finished recording the episode. Uh, it seems that estimates are that uh, fifty over 50 million people are trapped in modern slavery, with about 27 million of those uh, being, uh, 27 million of that number being comprised of people trapped in forced labor. Um, so when I'm discussing modern slavery and uh, how, our, how our convenient lifestyles uh, may come at the expense of those less fortunate than ourselves and come at a terrible cost, uh, a humanitarian cost, then uh, those are the numbers involved, 27 million. Okay, and now the episode's going to begin. Hello, and welcome to Fault Ego episode 14. Um, it's nice to be back sitting behind a microphone uh, again. I uh, hope you're all well. Uh, I I did actually record a whole episode and, um, and then <laughs> deleted it because uh, the Queen died between recording it and and obviously when I was about to release it so um, I'm re-recording it uh, I could have just kept the stuff I said and just added a bit of Queen stuff on top but then I realized what I wanted to talk about uh, weirdly in that episode also kind of spoke to uh, aspects of I suppose how we process the Queen's uh, death um, so there was a kind of transferable uh, message I guess from what I was originally talking about to that and I, I thought by re-recording I might be able to better uh, blend the two topics um, which have now if I fail to blend them and it's just really clunky it'll be like well you could have just done it <laughs> you should have just done it the other way and saved yourself save yourself heaps of time um, but so there are sort of two things I wanted to talk about um, in this episode both of which do speak to each other um, the first is, I guess, a recap of uh, why I've been away, um, not just as like a, this isn't just going to be like a, a, a journal, the worst spoken journal entry of all time. It's like an audiobook uh, written by a non-famous author. Why am I narrated by the author himself? Yeah, I know. I don't want to hear that. <laughs> I don't want to hear. It's Jazz's diary narrated by the man himself. So I don't care. Um, it's not me just doing that. There is something useful in me uh, recounting what's been going on for the last six weeks, which I'll dive into right now. And then after I've done that, we'll do some queen chat. Um, so I, the reason that I've, you know, there's been no episodes and I haven't been around and posting little links and also why this isn't even a live uh, recording with video and stuff um, is because... Uh, I'm still in a bit of uh, organisational turmoil, having returned from the UK. I went to the UK for a, four, for a month, leaving behind my wife and child. And um, I, went, I went back because I needed to help my dad uh, look after my mum. And he needed to sort of, uh, uh, sort of tap out, I suppose, because he's been uh, bearing the brunt of that for quite some time by the by the way I should also add uh, I'm recording this outside because my wife is currently uh, lecturing online uh, to her students in the office and that's more important than me uh, telling you <laughs> uh, what my last month was like um, they pay her students pay 
a lot of money to attend that university. <laughs> Whereas I think, you know, my Patreon, my Patreon subscriptions don't quite rival the uh, the um, the net, the, the gross whatever of a of a of a university top ranking university. So there you go. Um, so I'm outside. So we may be subject to some interesting aural um, contributions from the world at large. So just I'd let you know that. Um, yeah. So I went home and um, to help dad and also my sister because she's also been helping a lot and uh, they're both slightly uh, not at their wits end but you know it's, it's been a hard time and uh, obviously having me in Australia my brother in Thailand uh, there's not so much not much relief uh, being provided so I thought well it's you know I've got to do something so I went home for a month um, to help as much as I could and which inevitably turned out being, you know, full-time care. Um, and I think what I, what I learned uh, from that experience was that all of these things that, you know, we talk about on this podcast and in Patreon posts and little comments and all this sort of stuff, all these little skills we're talking about, and on the Discord, get on there. Um, there's some lovely chat between me and one man there. Um, <laughs> all these little skills that we're talking about, um, you know, mindfulness, breathing, um, just paying attention to your thoughts, not getting sucked into this, not getting sucked into that, um, were finally put to the test. Uh, I mean, they're put to the test every day. You know, every day is a, a challenge for more various reasons, but really, really, you know, the, the potential of that situation at home uh, to just bowl me over and destroy me <laughs> would have been a lot higher um, if if I hadn't been equipped with the um, this little fledgling uh, embryonic skill set that I'm still you know uh, trying to foster and grow every day. I'm still early days, you know. I'm not not some sort of Zen master. Far from it. I'm extremely flawed, but. Um, I'm so glad that I went home knowing the things that I'm starting to know because it was extremely useful um, and I'll explain why. So my mother uh, is going through the process of uh, pretty rapidly worsening dementia. Um, I, I'm not quite sure, I'm not, I haven't done a lot of research into this so I'm not quite sure how quickly dementia is supposed to progress but um, hers definitely seems to be moving at quite a pace um and so some of her de dealing with her you know caring for her is is quite uh a lot to, to bear um so for example well you're basically on uh 20 you know from the moment she wakes up to the moment we we both you know got her to bed um, or encouraged her to go to bed. Um, to, you know, you're, you're on from all day. Uh, there's no break. There's no rest. Um, because the symptoms, her symptoms put her uh, in a state of, I, I would say, personal um, peril if, if she's left alone. Um, so she can, you know, she can still move about physically. She's quite active. Um, she's starting to shuffle a bit, which is, um, she doesn't have Parkinson's. She has something called diffuse Lewy body 
dementia or diffuse Levy body syndrome, um, which seems to be like a horrible umbrella dementia that seems to borrow symptoms from from Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So it's a real, you know, it's a, it's not an, it's a pretty horrible uh, it's a pretty horrible disease condition. Um, so she started to shuffle, which means she trips occasionally. So her, her feet aren't working quite as well as they used to. But, you know, she's still up and about. And um, the, the basically, her array of symptoms means that, yeah, you can't let her out of your sight for very long um, for one of several reasons. One, her categories are all mixed up. So um, she might pour, you know... Um, red wine into the kettle uh thinking that that's gonna make a coffee um she might um put bleach in the coffee as milk um they've got a lovely dog called charlie and uh how that dog is still alive is something of a miracle but he you know on a minute to minute basis she might try and feed him stuff that he's you know nicorette tablets or um uh, human antibiotics um, uh, and chocolates, which you know is arsenic to dogs. Um, so there's there's all these sort of category mistakes going on. Um, so that's one thing. The other is that she can quickly become disoriented and you know uh, can go into a room, forget why she's gone in there, and then he, and then also forget actually where she is or why she's there, and and it's quite easy for her to suddenly believe that if she's brought been brought there against her will or that she she's been left there by someone um and you know so quit or you know she she doesn't understand what's going on and that's quite distressing so very quickly she starts you know uh crying or uh sobbing uh and making these sort of uh annoy despairing noises that f for me knowing my mum you know all her life were uh quite uh i've never i've never heard my mum make that noise before so it's quite confronting hearing these sort of almost um sort of banshee like wails you know coming from another room in the house and she sounds in you know real distress and you go in there and she's i don't know why i'm here um sobbing and you know uh le leaning into you for a hug and hugging you for comfort like a child would have a parent it was that was uh, quite confronting for me as well to have the parent-child relationship completely uh, inversed. Uh, so that's so either you know if you leave her alone, she can either do some damage. Uh, she can nearly kill the dog. Uh, she might drink bleach. You know, there's all sorts of things going on there. Or she might get into a state of distress, um, and then also the other problem is that her her, her memory is gone. Um, short term so not not only will she for example so the, the the intersection of memory loss and category confusion or you know not not quite understanding what things are leads to uh, situations where you know not only is she trying to feed the dog chocolate or feed the dog a bowl of uh, dishwashing fluid um, but she's you if you remind her um, they're not or tell her, you know, you can't feed a dog, don't let a dog drink bleach. Uh, obviously, within 30 seconds, that she's she's forgotten that information and is trying to do it again. 
Um, so it's, you know, it's these two separate uh, symptoms of, of her condition. Um, the, the combination of those two is, is quite overwhelming because it means every you know, minute, really, you're having to, um, yeah, every minute you're having to, to try and prevent something bad from happening. Um, and also if she, uh, similarly, you know, if you comfort her about where she is and I'm your son and that's your husband over there and, you know, she, if she thinks she gets a bit of imposter syndrome, thinks that, you know, my dad isn't her husband, uh, thinks he's some other man, uh, which leads to, you know, situations where he has to leave the house and come back in again and announce who he is. And that kind of seems to reset that for her. Um, but, um, yeah, the comedy, again, that in itself is quite confronting, but then combine that with the memory loss, um, you know, it's, you're having to repeat this process uh, multiple times a day, if not every hour. Um, so it was extremely, it requires a huge, a lot of patience. Um, and so, you know, and, and, you know, as a, as a child, seeing your parents in that state, um, is extremely confronting. It's very easy to get overwhelmed. So, uh, being able to focus on and bring myself back to my breath, uh, was a real gift. And it meant when I was feeling, you know, sad or confronted, um, well, the, the problem with feeling sad or traumatized or, you know, not being able to cope is that then if you buy into that, if you identify with that feeling, like that's me, that is my feeling, uh, then of course a second layer of, of dialogue or inner monologue can kick in. It's like, no, no, I mustn't be sad. You know, I'm letting my mum down. I've got to be brave. I've got to be strong. Uh, go away feelings. And then really what you're doing is now you've got two problems. One is the feeling, the, the um, initiating feeling. And the second problem is the dialogue that exists around the feeling. So now you've got two chunks of mental uh, RAM, I guess, to use like a computing term, um, being dedicated to, you know, feeling shit and your reaction to feeling shit. And meanwhile, you're missing the present moment and you're missing opportunities to form, you know, some memories with your, you know, with your mum or your, your loved one. Um, and so just, you know, if mum was, you know, giving me a hug and burying her, head into my chest and you know hugging me as if I were her parent um that's quite overwhelming and I I'm glad that I had the ability in that moment to if I was if if inside my head I was going fuck this is fucking weird like I'm like a her parent now and what does this all mean I didn't get too caught up in my reaction to thinking that I just let myself feel that way um and, and, and it's interesting by letting thoughts and feelings just sort of exist and accepting them and not getting too attached to either fully feeling them like, yes, I've got to feel the weirdness of this and this is what this is about and sort of buying into it too much um, or rejecting them, which is another form of attachment in a way because reject, outright rejecting a feeling is, is basically an attachment to or a pre uh, it's this prescriptive approach to well I shouldn't be feeling that I should be feeling something else um, so rejecting feelings is a way of is another form of attachment isn't it because you're attached to not feeling those things um, by accepting 
feelings and just sort of watching them, um, you buy yourself uh, more uh, mental, it expands your consciousness, I guess, to the point where these feelings are just allowed to float in a, in a bigger space. Um, it, I guess the best way I can describe it is by, by focusing on your breath and bringing yourself to the present moment and tr trying to just be kind of um, a sort of floating awareness that's watching all of your feelings happen without judgment and without attachment. Um, what that does is it, is, it, is it expands the canvas. So you're not denying the feeling, you're not trying to scrub it out or, or erase it. Um, what you're doing is the, the feeling remains the same you know, so if you imagine your your feelings are like a a feature of a painting or you know a feature on a canvas, um, by meditating or focusing on breath, you expand the canvas, and so that the the feeling remains exactly the same. It remains even the same size. You know, you're not pushing it further away so it becomes smaller, or anything like this. But breathing just expands the canvas, and so the feeling is allowed to exist in a in a larger space and it ceases to be the uh, the dominating feature uh, of the canvas which allows space for other feelings to uh, cohabit that space as well and this is the problem when we get attached to feelings is they can kind of dominate the the landscape um, so if yeah in the moment that my mum is crying in another room or um, or, you know, if, if my mum is having this, has, has asked me the, the same question 30 times in two hours, um, that can be quite frustrating and can tax your patience. And you can feel the frustration rising. And the worst thing, of course, in that moment is to suddenly now be engaging in a battle with that frustration and going, you know, and, and, and adding layers of monologue on top of that. You know, saying I shouldn't be feeling frustrated, and why am I feeling this? And this is my mum, and I, you know, you shouldn't be feeling this way, and she deserves better. And suddenly, there's all this like neurotic, extra noise around the feeling itself. And meanwhile, the present moment is passing you by. Whereas, accepting and going, well, I feel there is frustration there, and just labeling it, there is some frustration there, rather than judging it and commenting on it. Um, just observing that there is frustration, oh yeah, well there's some frustration there, immediately kind of robs it of power. Um, it's like, um, it's almost like feelings are themselves, like egotistical little bastards. <laughs> it's like the more attention they get, the more uh, it just kind of gives them encouragement to perform, doesn't it? But if, um, if a, if a, feeling goes on stage and gets no applause and no reaction from the crowd, they probably just give up and walk off. And that, that is kind of what happens. So in those moments as well, whether I was feeling sadness because my mum was hugging me and needing my comfort and I, you know, I was sort of just a bit discombobulated and blown away by what, how that actually felt. And I've, I felt extremely sad in those moments, just being able to label that. And, and observe it and watch it without buying into it too much and without trying to reject it and push it away meant that alongside the sadness because the canvas is bigger because the awareness is bigger I was also able to at the same time 
experience happiness and like you know i'm so pleased that i'm here for her and um that i'm able to give her comfort in this moment um and you know and other feelings as well complex it was a, so by by bringing myself back to just my breath and the present moment a whole sort of complex ecosystem of feelings were allowed to cohabit quite successfully without any one of them really being the the winner and without any one of them being the feeling that I wanted to have. You know, I wasn't attached to feeling a certain way. So I should be feeling proud of myself in this moment or I should be feeling sad at this moment or I should be feeling happy at this moment. They're, they're all happening. Um, so it's, it's, it's weird. It's like, um, it's like attachment means you're only allowed to watch um, one TV channel at a time. Uh, and that defines you. Like, oh, I'm watching a drama right now. This is a drama. I am drama. Um, but by expanding your awareness, um, which sounds, by the way, like quite a lofty expression, expanding your awareness. I, I wouldn't... It's it's, it, it's not like I have an aura <laughs> around me or something. It's it's nothing very metaphysical. It is, it is, it's, it's actually a lot more muscular than than it sounds. It is a muscle, um, and it's. But anyway, getting sidetracked. But yeah, by expanding the awareness, you know, you well. So, well, there are lots of um, there are lots of TV shows happening concurrently, and they're all good. Um, so I'm not going to buy into any of them. So you, you cease being a show, and you become Netflix. You know, you become you become the home for all sort. Your consciousness becomes the home for all sorts of shows, and. No, one of them is is the winner. Um, you're not attached to any of them. But I found it really helpful because it means, you know, all these moments, um, all these moments were able to occur without, um, yeah, without that extra layer of neurotic dialogue. So I shouldn't be feeling this. I've got to push it away or I'm so ashamed of myself for um, being sad in that moment. It's not about me. It's about my mum. You know, you, you, you don't want that additional... Because all of that is is not the present moment. That's just you adding layers of, you know, internal chit-chat on top of what's actually happening. And what's happening is, you know, my mum is needing a hug right now. Um, everything else is just feelings around that. And I can you should just watch all of them and uh, not, not buy into any of them too much. I mean, the other thing, the other way that it helped was... Uh, in providing a bit of resilience and patience to what is quite a taxing situation. So on top of just the capacity to manage your feelings from moment to moment, there's a lot of exhaustion, uh, both physical and mental, in dealing with someone who is, you know, experiencing a uh, quite a, you know, a, a full-on condition, whether it's, you know, cancer or... Um, some sort of you know ongoing chronic condition uh, and dementia is especially when it's becoming as bad as hers is uh, another one of those which, which is taxing and uh, for example um, one of the ways one of the ways I, I found I mean sorry just to backtrack a little bit so what tends to happen if you let her if you if I let my mum sort of wander off, you know, if I needed a break, which I increasingly realized wasn't an option, but in the first few days that I was home and jet lagged, um, I was like, oh, I just need like 10 minutes, you know, to just sit down and just 
have a cup of tea or something. Um, in those moments, she, you know, she will walk off to another room and quickly either, yeah, do something, cause some damage or become extremely distressed. And if she becomes extremely distressed, that's exhausting for her. And when she gets exhausted, then the conditions worsen because obviously, like with anyone, when you're tired, your brain doesn't work quite as well. So getting tired exacerbates uh, her symptoms. Um, so letting her be by herself isn't a great strategy um, because it means, yeah, she will get distressed because she'll real she'll forget where she is or she'll wonder why something is where it is which she thought she'd put somewhere else and the house will feel start to feel unfamiliar there was lots and lots of chat about when am I going home and why are we in this strange house and can I please go back to visit my parents which also was just tricky to emotionally process oh my gosh she's you know she doesn't even she thinks her parents are still alive uh you know 30 percent of the time um which is a lot to also you know process um but if she wanders off if you give her a bit of if you you know uh sit down and switch off for a bit and just have a little moment to yourself she'll go away she'll get distressed which she'll she'll get exhausted and then um her symptoms will get, symptoms will get worse and when her symptoms get worse that's when all the imposter syndrome stuff really kicks in uh, she starts thinking that her husband's not her husband and all this sort of stuff. And apparently that can happen about six times a day that my dad will have to leave the house and return pretending that, you know, now he's really back and the other guy's left. And that seems to reset who he is. Um, while I was home, so that was happening six times a day, roughly. Uh, when I was home, it happened once in three weeks that she thought dad was somebody else. So clearly me being home helped. And um, one way that I found that that did, ha did help quite a lot was to not let her get exhausted. By not letting her, and the way to stop her getting exhausted is by being, is by not leaving her alone to wander around the house and get distressed. And the way to keep, to prevent her from wandering around the house and getting distressed and getting into these, uh, getting into a pickle, you know, getting into a bit of strife was to somehow keep her focused on one thing in a relaxing way. And what that turned out to be was sitting down and talking to her for hours at a time. Um, so she would, you know, uh, if, I, if I could sit her down and just talk to her about whatever she wanted to talk about, sometimes for somewhere between three to six hours, A, that would stimulate her brain in a nice way because she's getting to talk about whatever she wants to talk about um, but b it's a it's a kind of restful stimulation you know she's not on a treadmill you know she's just sitting down and talking so she's both resting and being happily mentally stimulated and preoccupied um, which is nice and doing that meant that by the end of the day we would get to the end of the day uh, having had no incidents of you know wondering where she is or getting distressed or crying or any of those things um, but of course sitting down and talking to someone with dementia for, <laughs> for six hours even when it's your own mum uh, you know I've no shame in admitting that it's quite hard <laughs> it's quite hard because um, nothing she said really made any sense 
nothing she said made sense really. Um, and it would take about 10 seconds, I think, from introducing a topic of conversation to that to that frame of reference being completely lost and the 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 conversation would just derail so i would show her a photograph of say my daughter and say oh you know she's at school and um you know she's really enjoying writing and she's starting being able to read simple books and stuff like this and she's loving it and my mum would chip in oh yes i do remember her uh i remember one time this was maybe 30 years ago when when um, your brother was a teenager um, it's like well okay <laughs> already that's you know we're right we're, we've gone off piste already in the space of three seconds there because you know 30 years ago my child didn't exist and we were both standing in a queue uh, I can't remember what we were trying to buy but anyway the man we were trying to buy the things from oh he was so rude um, and you know she would start this anecdote that had people in it that weren't real and conflated the present with the past and memories all got mixed up and suddenly my daughter was meeting her parents which you know even I didn't meet her parents they were both dead before I was born so just all sorts of you know uh it, it there was just no way to pass it was just it was just impossible to make sense of what she was saying um and I would say without fail that happened to every single conversation we had um, could be, you know, we talk about anything. Could be talking about her dog. Could be talking about dad. Could be talking about the house. And very quickly, just became um, all, you know, uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. You know, all the memories and everything would get mixed up and come out as a new recipe. You know, um, so sitting there and sort of talking about that sort of stuff was hard because it would it would test your patience because you're not, uh, you know. As a conversation, it's not super rewarding because you're not. It's you. You're not. Uh, what am I trying to say here? It, well, it's just not. It's not a. It's not a conversation where any of the frames of reference um, help the conversation to continue. And it's your your job in that situation is just to facilitate her feeling comfortable talking. Um, and nodding along and pretending that what she's saying is making sense because that's the other things you can't really correct you're not supposed to correct people uh with dementia if you know they say something that's inaccurate or wrong because uh, that's quite distressing for them to to learn that it's like oh I've, you know what i've just said doesn't make any sense um so really your job in that situation is to go yeah yeah of course well that sounds like a lovely thing you did with with my daughter and my brother, gosh, that must that must have been so much fun, um, to a degree, you know. So it, it's, I, w I wish I could say that it was uh, easy, because uh, then I could feel good about myself as a person. Yeah, it was a piece of cake, but you know, it was hard. Even though it's even though it's your mum. Uh, I think, you know, there's no shame. I, sh I can't, there's no point lying to myself. So, yeah, I was great. Um, <laughs> yeah, there were moments where I was like, fucking hell, this, this is, you know, the fourth hour of nonsense. I'm starting, I just need another cup of coffee. I'm so, so tired. I'm so tired. I'm so goddamn tired. Um, but, you know, you keep, you, again, this is the thing, right, is you breathe and 
you allow that frustration to exist because if you start uh, judging it or either attaching to it you know if you attach to it and go yeah yeah you're right to feel like this this is this sucks or if you reject it go, you mustn't feel like this push it away please oh my god i'm so ashamed all of that doesn't help but just you know i've noticed the feeling of frustration arising in me and go yeah well that's what you're feeling if that's what you're feeling that's what you're feeling um but i'm just going to label that and catalog it as a feeling i felt there goes some frustration passing by you know um and sure enough by by not giving it too much attention it it doesn't want to perform on stage you know and it just goes all oh, right okay I'll, I'll fuck off then um and i was able to uh better focus on you know giving my mum the attention she needs um and that's that's the sort of ironic or paradoxical thing about it is that by accepting that you're being a bit crap the outcome of that is that you're a better carer <laughs> um you know because but whereas if you get attached to the idea of being a great carer then when frustration arises you or impatience or a bit of boredom that would preoccupy you because you go, I'm, I'm not allowed to be thinking this. This is awful. Oh my God, I'm failing. Uh, and then you would start feeling negative and shitty. And then you probably would become even more impatient because you'd be listening to your mum talking about something that, that in no way makes any sense. Um, well, and, that, and then now those her words would be falling on the ears of someone who's preoccupied with feeling shit and is in a bad mood a bad mood that they've generated so they've self-generated um so ironically paradoxically paradoxically by accepting the fact that you're being shit at something it allows you space it, it, it allows you to be better at it um so it's just this yeah it's this process of just allowing oh there's an airplane that one we'll just keep more push on um by breathing and giving those feelings space, you increase the canvas. And so you sort of just sort of robs them of their importance. Uh, and it kind of takes the wind out of their sails a little bit. Again, it's not denying or suppressing feelings. It's just creating a, a larger space, a larger awareness, a larger consciousness in, in which they can sort of float around. Um, and I suppose, you know, an, another analogy that might help is, you know, if, if if someone puts a wasp's nest in your face, like right in front of you, then that's probably all you're going to be able to think about. You know, you're not going to be able to make plans for tomorrow. You're not going to be able to think about, you know, what am I going to make for my kids lunch? Uh, you're just going to be thinking, oh, my holy shit, I've got a wasp's nest right in my face. It would, it, you know, that kind of thing tends to uh, distract us, doesn't it? But... Um, if on the other hand, you know, you walk past the wasp's nest and keep going down the country path and up a hill and uh, scale the mountain and look down on the vista that's in front of you, uh, the wasp's nest is still there, but it's now hanging from a tree that's, you know, three kilometers in the distance in a valley somewhere. Um, it's still there. You know, you haven't denied it exists, but it just takes up less of the vista, you know? And when you're able to look out at a, a broad, expansive view, um, you probably are able to think about other things. 
So the feeling's still there. You know, this is, I think this is the important thing is it's not about denying feelings because denial is a form of, like I said, it's, it's an attachment to the opposite of the feelings. Like you're saying, I shouldn't be feeling that because I should be feeling something else. It's still a sort of prescriptive mindset. You know, I must be feeling, I should be feeling this way at this point. So therefore that feeling is wrong. Um, it's not suppressing or denying anything. It's just letting them be and letting them be just again, increases the space in which they exist and means they become less significant. So I'm happy that I went home uh, knowing what I know because it just meant at my weakest points um, I was able to, um, yeah, my weakest points I was able to uh, embrace the full complexity of all these feelings that I was feeling. And it meant that none of them particularly dominated me and, you know, blew me off course. I mean, the worst, the, the worst situation I had um, was, if, if you'll indulge, indulge me in a, a quick anecdote, but um, my, we went out to a pub for dinner. We, we went to the Lake District for a week because my dad thought, you know, on top of, looking after mum it might you know if I'm going all the way home from Australia it might be nice to pretend it's a holiday and it, it still was a holiday you know uh, caring for mum is something I wouldn't describe as a a chore uh, it's just it was just a harder holiday than most but um but yeah we went to the Lake District rented out this little sort of Airbnb cottage thing we went out for a pub for dinner uh, and after dinner dad said we he was going to walk the dog back to the cottage from this pub because it was only on google maps it was like a 20 minute walk on a, on an easy country path and he said well so you drive mum home because you've not been drinking because i don't drink dad was very happy about that by the way having a chauffeur for four weeks means he could finally have a pint um you drive mum home and i'll walk the dog back so we got home and after 20 minutes, sorry, after it was a 20 minute walk. And after 45 minutes, dad still wasn't back. And then, you know, it was 50 minutes, 55 minutes. I texted him and said, hey, you're not back yet. Are you all right? It's starting to get dark. Um, and he, sorry, I'm just going to take a little slurp of tea. I'm not editing this out. Sorry. Oh, yum. My dad uh, texted back full of typos, which is rare for him which already wasn't a good sign. It's like, uh, no, not okay. In shoulder high, ferns and bracken, lost. <laughs> it's like, oh dear. Uh, so I tried calling him, no answer. So I texted him, look, can you see it? Can you use Google Maps or something to get to a, a road? And then at least you'll be able to have, get your bearings, no reply. It's like, okay, I'm a bit worried that you're not replying. Um, and then... I realized he had his iPad in the house. So I used his iPad to do that, you know, where where is my phone or I've, you know, find my iPhone, which showed me where he was. Uh, and his, his little iPhone icon popped up in the middle of a forest. And, <laughs> and it was just going round and round in circles, which wasn't a great sign. Um, and my dad's, you know, fairly intrepid. You know, he was in the scouts and a scout leader and he loves navigating by ordnance survey maps he refuses to well, that's partly a problem is he refuses to 
use um, Google Maps and stuff. He prefers using an ordnance survey map. Uh, so maybe that's why I didn't bother trying to use it. Um, and so he's fairly intrepid, and I was, so I was concerned that he was going around and around circles. I was sending him screen grabs of the map that I was seeing from his Find My iPhone thing. And it was getting later and later, and I could see on the iPad that his... Um, his his the battery on his phone was getting lower and lower because you know how if you use you know find my other apple device you're allowed to see the how much battery you have and i could see it's just getting worse and the battery's getting lower and lower no replies and his iphone's not making any progress in any direction in this huge expanse of forest and it's now you know it's getting pitch black outside and then his phone battery disappears and his phone his phone is now dead um I'm like, great, so my dad is out in the countryside, um, in the pitch black, you know, this is English countryside, Lake District countryside, no ambient city lights running, it's pitch black. And he's in a forest, so it would be even darker, and he's got no light source, and he doesn't know where he is. Um, and by now it's way past my mum's bedtime, so she's now tired and starting to panic a bit, and I'm trying to keep the truth from her. So, oh, silly dad. Silly dad, I suddenly turned into like a sort of weird caricature of Jim Broadbent. You know, I was like, oh, silly daddy. Just like trying to keep things cheerful. Um, <laughs> Don't worry, little one. Everything's going to be fine. Um, just like, who am I? Who is this character I'm doing to my mum? And then, but you know, He's not home, so she's worried. His phone's died, so I'm like, well, I can't really give him... I was willing to give him the benefit of the doubt up to that point that he might make it back, but not now. Now he's lost in the dark. So we had to, I had to get in the car and just drive around the bloody countryside trying to find him. Um, but I couldn't leave mum home because you can't do that. You know, I couldn't leave her to get to bed by herself or I couldn't put her to bed and then drive out and leave her because what if she wakes up in the night alone it'd be awful so I have to bring mum with me um, to find my dad and so we're driving down terrifying country lanes just like you know either side of the car by an inch is a dry stone wall threatening to chafe the car you know <laughs> Um, and I'm driving Dad's car, which I'm not used to. It's this chunky little SUV thing. Um, in the pitch black. Uh, so it's just extremely dark. You know, I'm driving down country lanes that I'm not used to. Trying to keep Mum relaxed, but also trying to find Dad. So I'm just like winding the windows down. And she's like, Dad! Where are you, Dad? And then back to mum, everything's fine, darling. Don't worry. So, but why are you screaming dad's name? Oh, you know, just silly daddy's done a whoopsie. You know, just like I was describing this to a friend on the phone the other day. It's like I was, I was, I was split oscillating between two characters. One was Jim Broadbent and the other was Harrison Ford. <laughs> when he shouts, you know when Harrison Ford shouts? It's one of the most comedically perfect noises. Harrison Ford as a comedy actor is deeply underrated. But, you know, when he's in Indiana Jones, he's like, 
Jack. Jack. Just that, that way he has of shouting is just extremely funny to me. But anyway, he... Um, so I was oscillating between these two characters. Like, Dad, where are you, Dad? Don't worry, darling. Everything's going to be fine. And just like, what is going on? I've got, I've got split personality disorder. Um, anyway, couldn't find Dad. Uh, I had to give up. I was driving around, you know, getting out of the car, screaming into forests, which you can't get into with the car. But I also can't get into them couldn't afford to walk into because mum can't handle you know bump anything other than a completely flat paved surface is a bit tricky for her so i couldn't venture into the forest to try and find him um so i said right okay we're gonna have to go home mum and and by this point she's sobbing and wailing and she thinks she's lost her three children uh which i guess was her mind's way of expressing concern that dad's missing but it kind of in her head turned into you know she was convinced that she was letting her children down that she's abandoned her children in some stranger's house somewhere so i was having to deal with that as well so it was a lot you know it's a lot i think you know in my mind my dad's out in the freezing cold it's like you know only like six degrees or something he was wearing shorts when we left you know he wasn't wrapped up he's in the dark he's panicking he's going around in circles um, it's pitch black, uh, and I was like, "Well, you know, he's 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 eighty years old next year. You know, he's he's he could be he could die. You know, he could have a heart attack in panic. So in my mind, you know, Dad could be dead. Mum's wondering about children that she's lost, and I'm trying to hold it together. We so I said, okay, Mum. Um, so you know, Dad's okay, but he's was gonna." Just uh, go home and call the police anyway. Just, you know, uh, get them involved just to help out, you know, rather than saying, oh, my God, I think my dad's dead. Oh, oh God. Um, so we drive home. I'm I'm all but, you know, moments away from calling the police. Um, and there's this, like, four-wheel drive buggy thing that I guess farmers use to drive around their property, you know, uh, to get around their property quicker get through fields and stuff this little four-wheel thing with this like ranger farmer guy in it i wasn't quite sure what his job was but he looked uh, rural and ready to go you know he looked uh, he looked intrepid and um and dad was in this buggy uh getting out i was like, oh my god thank fuck and he steps out this buggy and his legs from just around his knee down to his ankles are like a sheet red just like dripping with blood uh, and completely lacerated um it looks like <laughs> it, it looked like if you've watched the passion you know by mel gibson um his legs look like the back of jim it looked like jim caviezel's back you know his legs it looks like some, the romans had had a go at dad's legs you know just sheet red dripping with blood, cuts all over. It's the, one of the worst things I've ever seen. And his elbows to his wrists the same. Um, because it turns out he's been, you know, lost and panicked and trying to just make progress through some sort of impenetrable, bramble-ridden, thorns, thorny forest. Like some sort of, you know, dark, fangorn, murkwood whatever, you know, Lord of the Rings type 
evil forest. And, you know, you know when you get adrenaline and you're panicked and you're not really feeling pain. And he's just been like charging through undergrowth um, and just cutting himself up. So obviously this side of that uh, is very confronting. Doesn't help mum's mental state. So all right, dad, I'll get you in. Let's let's get you warm. Have a like a, a a warm but not a hot shower, just in case you know you've caught a bit of a chill. It's not a great idea to go from cold to super hot, but just have like a, a nice warm, tepid-ish shower. Wash the blood off. We'll find where these cuts are, and we'll 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 sort you out. Um, I get dad in the shower, and I'm so I'll make you a you know a cup of tea with honey in it. Um, Mum's just losing it in the living room while I'm trying to get Dad into the shower upstairs. There's these like sobs, this racked sort of like oh, oh, oh. I can't even do it. It's, it's, it's a noise unlike anything I've heard. It's just an odd. It's almost like I hate to describe it this way, but it, it, it sort of almost sounds like what a bad actor would do in like days of our lives if they were having to do the director said now conjure your worst sadness it, it almost felt like a performance and that's but oh, I, I obviously don't believe that but um it was just the oddest noise and very confronting again to hear your mum making that noise it's not nice to know that your mum's feeling that way uh, so i'm having to juggle my dad and that um, and dad comes out of the shower looking at his legs don't look much better to be honest but at least the the um, dried blood is gone and there's just the cuts left but really most of his leg is cut there's not a lot of skin covered in blood it's just all cut <laughs> it's horrific but they're all shallow fortunately all like surface level scratches um, so I'm putting a couple of band-aids on the worst the worst deeper ones and leaving the rest um, and I'm just sort of traumatized to be honest it was traumatic because uh, I'm my dad's sitting in this chair sort of slumped defeated and going over and over like I'm such an idiot and I can't believe I'm so foolish that this happened and really beating himself up but he's he suddenly like this defeated old man you know not quite my dad anymore in my mind uh, and downstairs mum's sobbing with so I have to quickly sort dad out so I'll go and make you a cup of tea I go into the living room briefly comfort mum uh, I was like it's okay don't worry mum everything's fine like he'll he'll be okay and you th and also I'm having to play along with her concerns like, I'm sure you th the three kids um you know, I, I reckon they're probably asleep by now. They're probably all tucked up um, wherever they are. And, you know, we'll just get up in the morning. We'll go pick them up. So I'm having to, like, have the presence of mind to acknowledge her delusions um, so that she feels uh, validated and not panicked that she's made something up, you know. So, okay, do you think they'll be okay? Do you think they'll be all right tomorrow? Will they still be okay? I said, yeah, I'm sure... Wherever they are, they're probably exhausted. They've probably had a big day. Uh, they're probably all tucked up and warm, and um, they won't be want they won't be worrying that you've abandoned them. Um, and we'll go and pick them up tomorrow. We'll just have a big brekkie, and everything will be fine. 
So having to have do that, you know, and sort of lie to my mum. <laughs> so then anyway, I go into the kitchen to finish, to make everyone a cup of tea. And I just feel it coming on. Um, just my shoulders start sort of shaking, you know. And uh, I can feel my eyes welling up with tears. And I just get taken over by this sort of um, your body uh, puppeteering sadness and sobbing. And I sort of break down briefly, you know. Um, it just takes over me completely because I'm just, all of these things are going through my head, like the parent-child relationship's been inverted. Um, my dad just nearly died. <laughs> or in my head, he nearly died, you know. My mum is inconsolable I'm, and I'm still hearing these sobs, you know, and, and how do I help her and, um, you know, what would, and then lots of like, what ifs, you know, what if, oh, and this, sorry, this is the other thing that happens that my dad lost the dog in the forest. Like he returned without the, so the dog's still out there. Um, and I'm like, what the fuck, well, the dog's going to die. You know, they're be this beloved family dog. That's one of the one things that keeps my mum happy. You know, she's obsessed with this dog. She loves him to bits nearly kills him 20 times a day, but she loves him to bits. Um, so that's on my mind as well. I completely forgot to mention that. Yeah, the dog, in my mind, the dog's dead. And I'm like, if the dog's dead, what, you know, dad's never going to forget this for the rest of his life. He's never, ever going to forget this. And my mum, if any of this kind of sticks in her memory, she's never going to forgive him. It's going to, and it's going to ruin his life. He'll never, he'll, the shame of that. And that's, that's another reason why dad's just so racked with shame. So and it, all of this is going through my head and I'm, I'm just, it takes over me and I start breaking down and I'm gripping the, the kitchen bench with my hands till my fingernails turn white, you know, trying to sort of suppress it uh, as this wave of trauma just rides through me. And it felt horrible. But I had the presence of mind to, again, not fight it, um, nor attach to it too much and go, well, this is me, I'm someone who's traumatized, you know, this is who I'm going to be from now on, or whatever. I just, I observed it all. I watched the shakes. I looked at, in, in my mind's eye, I watched my shaking shoulders. I watched my, the feeling of tears going down my cheeks and I, I, uh, I was clenching my teeth as well to keep my mouth shut to avoid letting the sounds of crying escape my mouth because I didn't want my, because the kitchen and the living room were, you know, both small rooms and right next to each other. And I didn't, I didn't want her to hear me in distress because that would only add, you know, make things worse. And I don't want dad to feel ashamed or or even burden, you know, burdened even further. Like I brought my son on this holiday and now he's crying in the kitchen. So I was trying to keep it from both of them. And I observed it all and I just let it happen. Um, and um, sure enough, it was, I mean, it was horrible. It was really horrible, but uh, I just accepted that it was horrible. <laughs> you know, what else are you going to do? I didn't fight it because, uh, again, you don't want to get, on top of that experience, you don't want to add a layer of neurotic inner monologue. Don't be feeling like this. Push it away. You're a weakling. You know, you're failing them. They need a strong son. You're supposed to be a man. You know, whatever. Any of that stupid nonsense. 
Um, and this is another, I mean, you know, it's a topic for another time. This is why patriarchy or just typical, you know, male role models or whatever men are supposed to be doesn't help because <laughs> it means in these moments you're trying to suppress something that's that's very real. Um, and suppressing something just isn't, you know, psychologically or spiritually, you know, East, Eastern philosophy's got this down pat. You're just meant to accept this stuff. So patriarchy is sort of, or to, you know, how a man is supposed to behave, you know, is uh, very, an, is the antithesis of what um, Eastern philosophy is teaching us, which is just to accept feelings rather than either, you know, attach or, or reject them or suppress them. So, you know, the last thing you want to be doing in those moments is to be, you stupid, you know, Im spineless imbeciles, pull it together, man, pull it together. Because, again, the ironic thing is by telling yourself to pull it together, you might act, that actually might be generating a an effect that's counter to pulling it together. Whereas by just letting these things unfold in front of my mind's eye and accepting it all, um, I did slowly pull it together because I wasn't fighting anything and I wasn't diverting mental energy to fighting something. I was just accepting it in all its horrible complexity, all these thoughts um, going through my head. And so eventually that wave passed through me and I was, you know, able to finish making the cup of tea and get them to bed and I got mum and dad to bed and then I went out. At, uh, I think it was half past 12 at night by this point, at this point. I went out with a head torch, headlamp, and, and the toughest pants I could find and I brought with me and I headed back into the forest trying to find the dog. Didn't find the dog immediately. Spent about an hour and a half, or an hour I think it was, uh, out in the out in the darkness uh, in that forest. And no surprise, Dad's legs got completely cut up because I was struggling to make it through that forest myself with thick pants on. And um, yeah, it was it really, it really was a, a Lord of the Rings forest. <laughs> I just couldn't get through it at all. Um, so I gave up and came home and woke up again at 5.30 sunrise to go and find the dog and spent ages trying to find him. And at 9.30, four hours later, he showed up about 100 meters away from where he got lost, judging by, you know, dad's little phone uh, GPS thing that I was doing the night before. Um, which apparently dogs do, you know. Um, they they rarely stray too far from um, where they, yeah, where they came from. Um, and, you know, my wife in Australia was coordinating a rescue effort as well. She was contacting, like, Lake District, lost and found groups and all sorts. So everyone had their eyes open. And uh, Eventually I found two builders who were working on a construction site on the edge of the forest. I said, look, I don't suppose... You've seen a little dog. It's like, oh yeah, not too long ago, just uh, a little black and black and grey fella. Anyway, they were from the north. They were from the north. Um, so there you go. And that so that saga was awful. Um, and uh, there were lots of moments, individual moments in that. <laughs> it was quite traumatic. The, thinking the dog was dead. Thinking Dan was dead seeing your mum thinking she's you know abandoned three children that that don't exist um and uh seeing your dad covered in blood i mean that's 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 quite a sight um and i got through it but it's you know and i 
I, I, I definitely know that I'm traumatized by that because I can still feel a, a sort of a tightness uh, in my chest when I talk about it. And I feel quite shaky when I talk about it, but you know, we'll get there. Um, but I, again, all of these little skills and techniques, they just, again, they didn't mean I got through that whole experience floating on a cloud no, by any means. Absolutely not. Oh, goodness me, no. I was a wreck, but I accepted that I was a wreck and doing so made the whole thing just that, you know, 16% easier. Um, so there you go. It helped. It all helped. Um, but I think, you know, that that whole month away, what it showed me was the value of focusing and bringing yourself back to the breath. Deep in, taking a deep breath in uh, into your navel and trying to focus your attention and your consciousness there. It's very grounding. It's like a little anchor. And what it does is that becomes your focus of attention and all your feelings become almost like reference points on a map, but they're not where you are. You know, you're just noticing them and labeling them. Where you are is the breath in the present moment and in that sort of in your navel. And doing so just gives yourself that tiny crack in the door, uh, that tiny crack, that tiny bit of distance between you and your feelings to observe them, acknowledge them, recognize them that, you know, they are yours. You're not saying these are somebody else's feelings. It's not like you're denying they exist. It just gives you that bit of cognitive um, distance. And in that distance lies a lot of control uh, and eventual calm. <laughs> um, while you know the world is falling apart at your feet, and uh, and and it allows for a complexity of emotions to coexist. You don't have to choose. This is the other thing, and this is what I'm. This is my segue into the Queen. <laughs> is it allows a complex array of emotions to coexist. Like when I was hugging my mum, and I was, and she was, and you know, she was burying her head into my chest, and I felt like her dad. And it was weird because I was thinking about my own daughter. Uh, it's like, well, what am, who am I? There was a lot of like midlife crisis because I'm about to turn 40 as well. So there's all this like midlife crisis narrative inside my head. It's like, who am I? You know, I'm a father to my daughter. This is my mother and I'm her son. But that feels like I'm also her carer now. I'm her guardian. So I'm a guardian both to my mum and my daughter, but I've abandoned my daughter. So I'm a, for a month. So am I really a good dad? You know, it's just like, am I a good dad? Am I a terrible son? Am I a good son? Because I'm now a carer to my mum who should be looking after me. Who's looking after who here? All like this like maelstrom of uh, inner monologue. Um, but uh, there was that. There was also pride and happiness. I'm so glad I'm here for her. And, you know, they're all valid. You know, they're all, you know, it, it, it's, it's foolish to say, well, I'll, I'll try and let's just try and attach to the happy feeling, suppress the who am I? What's going on? This is awful. I'm so sad. Um, because it's all you, you know, it's all it's all valid. Um, and again, in doing so, in accepting, increasing the awareness, increasing the canvas, you allow the canvas to include more things on it, you know. And so it's um it's not just a painting of an angry person. There's there's other stuff going on there, and, and the the image remains the same, but the amount of space around it 
increases and so it becomes less the image loses some of its potency and some of its dominance and it yeah again it creates space for other little things to to exist alongside it now i found that on an individual level extremely liberating uh, and empowering again not saying i was floating on a cloud i was it's still it, all of these things affected me but it just gave me that little bit of control and that little bit of space to to not oh hello the little yappy yappy dog okay you must have seen something that he's deemed a threat like a postman or something <laughs> why did why do dogs react to postmen so almost instinctively it's almost like it's almost if you were a conspiracy theorist you'd be convinced that thousands of years ago wolves worst rival were men in fluoro jackets trying to give them packages you know it's like where, where does the dog's instinctive hatred of male uh, delivery men come from it's very strange um but yes <laughs> i was very happy to have that sense of control now on an individual level i, f I found that extremely useful and i think uh on a global level on a collective level that sort of approach i think is useful as well um because it means collectively you know it, it, on on an individual level if you try and suppress a feeling or over identify with the feeling of saying this is the only feeling i should be having right now or you know put yourself together be a fucking man come on you're not allowed to be sad sadness is the wrong reaction this is then really what you know what comes out of that is um neurosis certain pathologies you know if you suppress a trauma as it's occurring uh probably that trauma is going to rear its head again later so you know there's going to be sickness you'll get physical maladies from unrecognized trauma or whatever you know so the the outcome of over attaching to a feeling or suppressing a feeling either there's there's gonna that's gonna it's gonna rear its head in some fashion and there's gonna be sickness or you know more f pain further down the road i think collectively that that's the same as well and i think collectively we need to expand uh, our, I guess, consciousness or kindness or compassion to each other and allow for an array of reactions to coexist because saying that only one reaction is valid seems to lead to conflict and um, a lack of, I guess, uh, I, th I feel like it's, it's, it's antithetical to the human project to assertively say that one reaction is the only reaction that's allowed and so with with reference to the queen um and look we don't have to get too bogged down in in the actual specific context of the queen this this, this is more broadly about global events generally and, and also about how we talk online and how we communicate with each other and um increasingly you know that the, the the spaces we inhabit are online spaces and so if, if that's going to be the case moving forward i think we need to be wary of these of what these online what behaviors these online spaces foster in us but it seems to me that um a large proportion of people when the queen died felt very confident in articulating what they saw to be the 
the only acceptable reaction. Um, and my, my problem isn't with the reactions, it's the, the language with which they're communicated and the certainty with which they're almost like dogmatically, um, yeah, dogmatically articulated online to the extent that in, in articulating your reaction, you're denying the possibility or acceptability of any other reaction. So just to give two examples, uh, I'm sure there are many, but you know, on the one side there was, and I think there were multiple sides, so it's not, this wasn't a, a two-way or two, uh, there weren't two reactions to the Queen's death, obviously. There were many, many sides to it, but one, a side was, you know, um, I'm so sad, you know, you know, she meant so much to me and she was a figurehead and a source of comfort and, you know, I grew up in the shadow of Hitler and, um, you know, she was there for us the whole way through and a continuity and a, the British spirit, blah, 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 blah. So there's lots of people who um, obviously were very sad that the Queen's died because she meant a lot to them. There was also There were also people who see her through the prism of what the monarchy represents historically uh, and not just historically like I'm not saying it happened a long 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 time ago and isn't still ongoing but uh, historically and through to the present which is it represents you know a imperial uh, colonial and, and bloody past and to some extent present um, and they were not that <laughs> not that bothered that the queen had died um, and to me both of those are reactions you know they're not i'm not going to say either one is the reaction i i myself am, am not particularly attached to the idea of the queen um i you know i i've have some fondness of her in terms of uh, being a presence in my childhood at, you know christmas it's on oh, the queen speeches on it was a thing we did as a family but i'm not you know i'm not gonna i'm not a staunch uh advocate for the monarchy um nor do I particularly um, hate it, uh, but I appreciate that people do, and I think that's the, for very good reasons. That my, the problem is that when either of those two positions is articulated in a way that denies the um, validity of the other, because they don't cancel each other out, I think that's the important thing. Is It's, it's not like some people being fond of her means you sort of meant to let the colonial stuff go. <laughs> it's not like, you know, if there are old people in their 60s and, you know, people in their 70s or whatever in the UK, like, oh, you know, she meant so much to me and, like, she was just there and, you know, I just, oh, God bless her, you know. She's just, what are we going to do without her? That, like, that, that doesn't mean suddenly the monarchy doesn't have a horrible past. Um, nor does the monarchy having a horrible past mean that she wasn't um, a source of comfort to people. You know, these things don't cancel each other out. They can coexist. Um, but increasingly, but what we what you see online is, and I do think it's a symptom of online-ism, <laughs> is, you, you know, you get people going on there saying, not just she meant a lot to me, but that she must mean a lot to everyone else and that you all have to treat her with the same respect that I do. So, you know, so you get people saying, you know, the Queen was the one of the best things that's ever happened and blah, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if you dare 
use this as an occasion to bring up blah 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 then shame on you and you've got no respect and you're a despicable human being and it's like well I think um, you can have your reaction and the people who are saying I'm sort of glad I'm, I'm not you know I'm not not I'm glad that she's dead but you know we shouldn't really be so in awe of her I don't think I think um you're only allowed one of those. I think you can feel how you feel. And that's how you feel. I don't, but I don't see how, I don't really see you feeling that way as a sort of platform to then be sort of dogmatic about what other people's reactions need to be. And that is how it's coming across. It's like, it's a an edict of like, right, the Queen's dead, here's the one official reaction that's allowed. Um, it's not healthy. And in the same way, you know, individually, on an individual basis, if you suppress certain feelings, that is not good for your bodily health. It's going to come out, you know, in some fashion, you know, cortisol's going to go up. You're going to have a heart attack, you know, in six years time. And, you know, it'll be partly this moment right now will partly be to blame on an individual level. That's true. On a societal species level. There's going to be some sort of pathology that emerges from trying to suppress certain reactions to a geo, an enormous geopolitical event. You know, I mean, one, you're going to create division. You know, by by you know the people who are saying, "Well, let's not view this with rose-tinted spectacles." You know, she was part of an institution that's got a problematic history. Um, suppressing that is just going to further divide two sets of people who are already divided by the monarch by by the monarchy by imperialism by well here's one group of people who have had one historical experience here's another group of people who've had, who've had a different historical experience you know a worse historical experience um that's already that is already the state of play. Now we're just making it worse by saying, "Well, I'm going to deny your feelings." You know, it's just we're not going to end up anywhere good from saying, "Well, my reaction is the only one that's hard." Similarly, from the other side, you know, um, I I don't think uh, I don't think allowing people's people to have a fondness for the Queen reflects badly on your capacity or invalidates your capacity to criticize the monarchy and its past you know it's not it's not like you're betraying the cause by saying look I you know if you I can see how people in England love her you know uh, but I do think now is a good time to reflect on what the monarchy means and should it be disbanded and can we, you know now is an appropriate time to uh, be talking about what the monarchy means because a significant part of the monarchy, i.e., the Queen, has just died. So it is actually, you know, just going to transition to a new chap. Um, it is an appropriate time to discuss it sensitively. But again, once you introduce the dogmatic uh, aspect to it, then again, all we're doing is going to increase tension and conflict. So to have, you know, like I just said, having the reaction of now is the time to celebrate and blah, blah, blah. If you dare bring up, etc., then you are a disgrace. 
same thing from the other side. If you if you say, you know, the Queen was the figurehead of a blah 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 institution that historically is blah blah. If you're celebrating her, then you are um you're you've got blood on your hands, you're a murderer. So I don't think my <laughs> I think my dad's a bit sad the Queen's I don't think my dad's a murderer, you know. <laughs> He's my dad's a nice guy. <laughs> Just hold hang on a second. Um you know, it, that that also yeah, the only thing we should be doing is popping champagne corks. Celebrate glad that she's fucking dead. It's like, well, you're glad she's fucking dead. And again, for taking that individual perspective of allowing, just recognizing emotions. Like, I'm, you're glad she's fucking dead. Great. Just don't attach to that to the extent that you think that's the only feasible reaction. Because all you're going to do is piss off millions of people who aren't glad who are quite sad that she's dead and um i don't know i don't want to tell people how to react because that then that would be me also contributing to the problem i I think it's 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 finding i think what the on let's let's just abstract this from the queen's death for a moment and make this about any reaction to any public event or any uh, you know global you know event of global significance. I think what the online space does to us is it entreats us to be very sort of yeah dogmatic and certain about what we think. The reason for that being very obvious is that's the business model of these online spaces and you in in an online space where there are millions of voices having anything less than um, a very direct and certain opinion about something is a recipe for failure because you're not going to stand out. And that's, you know, th- this goes back to some of the earliest episodes of this podcast. <laughs> some, of the, some of the earliest episodes, like 10 episodes ago, it sounds like I'm talking about, you know, going back to the BBC archives from 40 years ago and some of the earliest episodes of this podcast... 10 episodes ago, <laughs> we were talking about this, about how the online space, um, you know, it puts anything we think through like a centrifuge to the point that you know, the only acceptable way to communicate in these spaces anymore is with absolute certainty because we want to stand out, because we want to succeed, because there are digital brownie points at stake. You know, it's, you've got to think of Twitter as not, social media you've got to think of it as a as a pokey machine or a fruit machine or whatever they're called in the states in england they're called fruit machines australia they're called pokies aren't they in the u.s what are they slot machines is that what they are and they're, they're rigged to get you addicted by delivering you dopamine and with fruit machines and pokey machines whatever it's the promise of winning the jackpot and the tactile pleasure you get from pushing the buttons and seeing the wheel spin and cranking the handle and eventually the money coming out that's the real hook you know there's all these mini hooks the tactile sensation of the machines the noises they make the rhythms these have all been designed by psychologists and you know people people uh, who've turned to the dark side just to extract money from you and it works you know they've all been designed to heart you know uh, what is it? Hijack the brain. Twitter's no different. Only, you know, you've got vibrations and little noises. You know, little noise, little cute little noises, and 
retweet buttons and vibrations and not the notification buttons been designed in a certain way to appeal. All of this has been designed to hijack your brain and the, the way to score the jackpot, the, there's, there's the, the, the mini hooks, which is just the overall pleasingness of the interface itself and the dopamine you get from, uh, I mean, I think people have proved, there's been research shown now that you actually get a dopamine hit before you even checked if you've got any notifications or ads or retweets. We're so hardwired to expect reward that we get a little tickle in the brain before we've even checked to see if, if we've had any success. Um, so there's all these mini hooks and then there's of course the jackpot itself, which is, a, you know, going viral or, you know, getting 200 retweets, you know, which for me back in the day would have been pretty common. Uh, I just don't, don't, that's not true. Don't go back and check my Twitter timeline. I think I've, I've had like 10 tweets that have done well in my, in my time. But, um, so we, we know we're, we, we want to do well on these places. And, and unfortunately the way, the best way to score the jackpot is by being, is by speaking in this language of absolute certainty and really planting your flag firmly in the ground is to, to communicate what you stand for because then of, of that has the trickle effect of allowing other people to retweet your tweet and in doing so that in itself is a form of communication you're making it easy for other people to communicate what they stand for because um, they get to point at your tweet and go that's me I think that too and so it's because we're just making it extremely easy to, we're furnishing other people with an easy opportunity to communicate their values. Um, and so we've all become a bit more certain online. We're all a bit more certain that our way is the right way or what I think is the right way. And if anybody comes up with evidence to the contrary, you call them a cuck or a Nazi. <laughs> it's just, it's such a childish space that doesn't allow for Again, just increasing that canvas and just thinking, well, maybe there's a couple of reactions here that um, are, va are valid, you know. Well, not even valid, but they're just, I mean, the problem with the reactions is that they just exist, don't they? They're, they're not, it's not always ne necessary to view reactions through the prism of right or wrong. It's just they exist. You know, I mean, if the Queen is a colonial murderer, being sad that she's dead probably is wrong. Um, but like, I don't know. Like people are sad that she's dead though. So that that is a that is a reaction that's out there. Um, and I think saying, you know, you cannot be sad. It's time to pop the champagne corks. It's probably both, isn't it? I think um, essentially what I'm trying to say is that... that I mean, we've we've seen in the past with like Brexit and Trump and uh, the pandemic, where you know there's sort of uh, two different emerging groups of people, and um, who think whose who reality to them appears two very different ways. Um, I think we've seen that labeling, you know, one half labeling the other half you know, morons or stupid or denying that they're allowed to think the way they think and coming up with derogatory terms for or 
sort of derogatory attitude as to why they think what they think. Like with Trump voters, there was just absolutely no room to uh, contemplate that any rational person would come to vote for Trump for any good reason. You know, it was all because they were bigoted pieces of shit. Um, where, you know, I, I know brilliantly smart people who thought he was great, much to my dismay. Um, so this idea that they're all like stupid, if you're a Trump voter, your IQ must be blur, against just this denial of reality um, and this dogmatic sort of refusal to just contemplate that there's more than one uh, perspective in the world or more than one feeling in the world. Again, similar to, you know, if you if you... If you just expand your awareness, it's possible to see that there are different things going on. It doesn't mean you have to validate them. It doesn't mean understanding why someone would vote for Trump means you therefore think voting for Trump is a good idea. It just means you understand how someone could become deluded into thinking that it's a good idea. It's accepting that the delusion is possible. It's not validating the end result. The end result... Uh, same with the pandemic, you know, it's, you know, pe people were rightfully uh, scared of uh, vaccines. I say rightfully because there appeared to be, to those people, enough evidence as far as they were concerned to believe that, the you know, the vaccines were dangerous or whatever. And again, it's not, so holding enough expanding your heart with compassion to hold in your heart space. I hate using that word. It sounds so weird, but anyway, it is a term. Holding in your heart space, in having enough room in your heart space to uh, understand why someone thinks a certain way is, is so much more productive than denying them the right to think that way. Um, I mean, again, it's like understanding why someone thinks something isn't the same as agreeing to what they think. I think these, you know, these are two different things that we need to get better at. And uh, especially at this time in history, you know, at this point in time, like increasingly what we need, what we need is a lot more commonality and cooperation and, um, yeah, compassion and empathy, because otherwise we're not going <laughs> we're not going to make it. Uh, I was about to say we're not going to make it off this rock alive. We're not even going to make it on this rock alive. We're all going to die. Like this, the planet's just anyway. It's it's not looking good, guys. Um, but increasingly, it it's it's crucial to understanding why someone might think the way they do, even if you don't like what that results in them thinking. And putting effort into that understanding isn't a capitulation. It's not the same as validating what they think. It's it's actually it's just saying, look, I think what you think is absolutely crazy, but I can see what it is that's led you to that point. And same with the the queen's death you know this sort of i don't i think you know i, I 
I've seen lots of people expressing themselves in very um, open-hearted kinds of ways that, that does sort of validate or is able to, you know, uh, chew gum and walk at the same time. And look, I, my perspective on this is, is X, Y, Z, but I can see, you know, I, I understand she means a lot to some people, but let's, you know, I think it's also a good time to, as much as those who love her might want to mourn her passing, I can also, I think it's also a good time to reflect on what the monarchy means and, and it's the part it played in blah, blah, blah. Um, and that's fine. I think it's when either side gets into like, if, you know, the only thing we're allowed to be doing right now is to, um, celebrate or the, uh, sorry, sorry. The, the only thing we should be doing right now is mourning and respecting her and anyone who disrespects her is, you know, a horrible piece of shit. I was like, well, I think you fail to appreciate, <laughs> you know, other historical pers perspectives that aren't your own. I think shutting ourselves ourselves off from opinions or positions we don't like also fails to uh, or will fail to get humanity anywhere very good because it's 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 quite simplistic and humanity isn't simplistic. It's very complex and it um, it denies us the opportunity to reflect on how it is people can come to love something that's problematic. Um, Rather than saying no, you're wrong to love her. So, well, hang on. Let's 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 explore how it is that people can become infatuated by an institution that's you know done a lot of harm. Um, it's it's odd to just sort of say, well, humanity's default setting is pure good, and therefore all these people who worship the queen are somehow just like a, a faulty. Um, I think humanity that unfortunately liking things that are problematic is isn't faulty. I think that's sort of the fa default factory settings. Like humanity does have a problem, <laughs> you know. Um, I mean, thinking of it differently, you know, I, I think you know how how can you love something or enjoy something that presides over suffering and uh, oppression? Um, very easily, I think, is the answer. Uh, I mean, we do it all the time. Who who doesn't use who doesn't use Amazon? You know, I mean, if Jeff Bezos was declared king tomorrow, <laughs> you know, if he just announced, "Hey, everyone, I've got more money than anyone else in the world, and I'm sort of just declaring myself king of Earth," who who of us would refuse to be his loyal subjects? <laughs> I can't. Then quite, you think you'd find him? He has quite a lot of supporters. You know, he could even he could even just openly admit, yeah, um, yeah, I'm just going to pay people nothing and make factory workers piss in a bottle and not have toilet breaks and work for crummy wages, and we would just all be like, yeah, but the packages are still going to arrive within like two to three working days and if I'm not, if I've got prime next day delivery, right? So yeah, of course. Okay, thank God. We'll just go ahead then. Keep a keep a pressing away. Like that's um and that's that's not that's not someone who's part of an institution that stretches back centuries who is anointed by God and has and has all sorts of weird pomp and ceremony around him. That's just a normal bloke who we put up with. <laughs> He's not even He's not even, you know, part of some institution. And we, we gleefully 
prop him up. Um, so it's not just, you know, it's, it's, it's not as easy as saying the monarchy's evil and anyone who supports it is a piece of shit. Um, I think we're all quite complicit in many various intersecting forms of oppression uh, that we quite uh, happily turn a blind eye to when it benefits us. <laughs> you know, there's lots of people, there's lots of people tweeting online about how fucking evil the queen is um, while doing it on devices that were, <laughs> you know, made out of minerals dug up by fucking slave kids. <laughs> so, um, but of course, as, lo as long as it's, you know, yeah, but my is that's my iPhone. That's totally different. I don't know. It still seems to me like a complex system where very specific groups of people are getting screwed over by a high, by a, an oppressive power. In this case, Apple. But anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. I think to sum up, um, yeah, there's. <laughs> It's the same same as when you go when I was going through something traumatic as an individual, and the same as how meditation and coming to the breath and coming to the present moment and accepting a complex array of feelings often contradictory, you know, hugging my mum simultaneously, um, heart wrenching because she's hugging me as a parent, as as in she thinks I'm a parent. Um, hugging me in that way is heart, both heart-wrenching and a moment of joy. And if I try and push either one of those away and pull one closer, I'm just going to end up with an additional layer of like neurotic dialogue that's not helpful. Uh, and it'll take me out of the present moment. And it, and, and it won't be a true reflection of the complexity of that moment, because that moment is complex. Right? So it's silly to prescribe that only one of those feelings has earned its place in that moment um, and getting caught up in that internal discussion is a waste of mental um, energy and resources. I think um, to sum up, I guess the approach that I'm advocating here is like that, that, that allowing different uh, perceptions to coexist isn't to say that either one or that both are valid. You know, I, I, I'm quite comfortable and happy to agree that if you love the queen and love the monarchy it's not it's not the same as saying uh that that is uh as valid as thinking all the things the monarchy's done is 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 evil and vicious um and saying you know i, w I wouldn't say that um well the, both of those are correct you know there's <laughs> the you know so it's almost like a balance sheet that the fact the fact that some people do love the monarchy means it's absolutely okay because it kind of cancels out the bad things they've done it's not so it's not like i'm saying well some people loved hitler so i mean let's just you know pros pros and cons no no he was objectively awful so i'm not saying that we need to uh i'm not saying that it's like yeah i'm not saying it's a balance sheet right what i'm saying is that um showing understanding as to why someone might think the way they do and react the way they do doesn't mean you also have to validate or isn't an act of validation of the thing that they think uh, it's just it's just showing it's just showing an understanding that yeah human beings can come to love 
uh, flawed things. Um, and denying that, saying, well, no, your reaction is wrong, is to kind of have a simplistic or, or weirdly optimistic view of humanity that, you know, humanity, when it's operating properly, will orient itself towards things that are only morally good. And that's simply not the case. We, we find it extremely easy to orient ourselves towards things that are deeply problematic and harmful. Uh, you know, my previous uh, example of, you know, iPhones and Amazon uh, included, you know, it's, uh, we, we all find it extremely easy to look past inherent flaws and evil within certain systems that we find extremely comforting and uh, convenient, you know, I mean, that's, you know, none of us would buy iPhones if they, A, involved slavery, for, like actual slavery, or slave wages, or, or factory work sweatshop conditions, and also blew up three days after you bought them. Like, no one would put up with that. And we put an end to it. What, we're, we're putting people in sweatshops to make stuff that doesn't work. The fact that we can use them to post selfies and do online shopping and, you know, go on Instagram and all these sorts of things. The fact that we, the fact that we love them. Oh, look, it, the, new, the new iOS update lets me turn my own face into a unicorn. I love it now. You know, look, look how easy it is to get hundreds of millions of humans to just completely overlook systemic oppression just because the thing that that oppression gives them is a bit of comfort uh, and convenience. Well, that's the queen. You know, she's extremely comforting to millions of English people uh, and poss possibly, you know, Americans and, you know, um, well, who knows who she's comforting to, but for argument's sake, just let's just say the English and possibly some Scottish and Welsh people as well. But anyway... Getting sidetracked again, you know she's extremely comforting and a, and a and a and a symbol of, you know, the continuation of the British spirit. Blah blah blah. Triumph over adversity, etc. etc. Et People are quite willing to uh, embrace that, despite the fact that she, uh, well, not she individually, but the monarchy has presided over some shameful <laughs> acts. <laughs> and genocide uh, over history. And it's important to be able to uh, comprehend that both of those things are possible. And Because if we don't comprehend that, if we don't believe that that's possible, that people can love something awful, and that that actually is a, a uh, an inbuilt flaw of human beings across the planet, not just English people, it's not just English colonial oppressors who are quite happy to overlook uh, horrific tragedy and genocide because of something that makes them feel good about themselves. That's, that's all of us right now are all overlooking some quite horrific shit that we are all complicit in just because of the net, the, the result of that for us individually is something we quite like, <laughs> you know. I mean, take global warming, for example. You know, I think at one point, the uh, the demographic that were increasing the amount they fly year on year the most, percentage-wise, was Gen Y. 
who are also the generation most vocal about climate change, is how do you square that? I mean, that's that's like loving the queen, you know? It's like you love flying so much, <laughs> and yet you're also subconsciously or possibly even consciously aware of the fact that the planet is dying and that, you know, there are Pacific Island nations getting consumed by the sea. I mean, that's an act of... Maybe, I don't know what that is, an act of... It's not... Whatever the opposite of genocide is, it's not that, is it? You're not, you're not helping, you're not helping uh, nations flourish, are you? By flying so much, you're helping nations get swallowed by the sea. But you're very happy to prop up, you know, plane, plane companies, aviation companies, because you get to go on a holiday somewhere that's nice. Well, that's the queen. She makes you feel nice, you know. So I think by denying that aspect of people, by saying, well, no, that reaction's wrong. You can't possibly love the queen because she's evil. And um, the only reaction is that we should celebrate her death. So, you know, we should ce celebrate the fact that she's dead. Is a well, I don't know. I, I would, I think it's worth extending some understanding as to why people could come to love her. It's worth, it's worth understanding how people can come to believe that vaccines are bad. It's worth exploring with humanity and compassion why some people would be driven to voting for Trump or Pauline Hanson or whoever or Scott Morrison, you know. Um, it's worth treating that with um, a non-dogmatic compassion because we, we, we stand to learn so much about the, um, the shortcomings of the human condition when we're willing to entertain the possibility that yeah people can love something that's that's um that's been a, a source of pain for hundreds and hundreds of millions of people um and i think the queen's death is a is a is a really useful moment to uh contemplate the potential for both to coexist uh the fact that people can, I don't, by coexist, I don't mean live by side, side by side. I mean coexist as in both are possible things that have happened in, in this existence. You know, it's, it's possible for people to love the monarchy and love what the Queen represents while that thing also being responsible for so much suffering. Um, and to explore why, why, why they are able to overlook that suffering. I and mean, I, I think... Part of it is that people don't know about it. Um, that that's that is part of it. And so, I don't think lots of people love the Queen because she presided over genocide. You know, that's and that would be really that would be really fucked up, uh, and that would be concerning. But I, and that's another thing is that I think you know the way some people talk about it sounds like that is what we're suggesting that you love the Queen. That's because you're a racist, and it's like well. I think possibly people love her not because they're racist, but because they're ignorant, which, I mean, obviously there's a lot of overlap there, but they, they don't love the Queen because they enjoy the idea of other nations being and peoples being squashed. Um, they love her because she wears nice things and marches down an aisle to pomp and circumstance and music and makes them feel British and makes them feel, I don't know, fucking happy and fish and chips and, you know... Love it. Loving the Queen is, you know, to some people is as, is as much about race as it is about loving fish and chips. I mean, they just, they think it's just Englishness, right? 
and that's the shame of it and that is the shame of it and it is a shame um but if if we refuse to engage with the potential for people to love something like that then and just deny it and go well no you're wrong or the only way we should be feeling about this is this way and that goes both ways of course um we're missing an opportunity to appreciate just how odd the human condition is uh, and we don't get a full uh, complex portrait of yeah of of humanity as it stands you know it's it's like it's like having a portrait of it's like if Leonardo da Vinci just you know painted like the Mona Lisa, but all he did was like a close up of her ear, <laughs> you know. It's like yeah, it's an interesting picture, Leonardo, but it, I mean, it's a it's an amazing, it is an amazing picture of an ear, but um, a close up of an ear it is nonetheless. I don't feel you've captured the full complexity of what was in front of you when you were painting at the time, you know. That wouldn't. <laughs> If he'd called that the Mona Lisa and it was just a close-up of some earwax, you know, I doubt it would have become the uh, the cultural icon, <laughs> the historical icon that it is. But the Mona Lisa is, is you know, so beautiful uh, precisely because it does take in everything. It's, it's it. the face, it's the eyes, the hair, the, that knowing, weird smile, the, the landscape, the colour palette he's chosen, all of those things working together pr pr um, present the full image, you know, and that's a masterpiece. Well, reality is a masterpiece that's far more complex than a painting of a woman. You know, reality is to take in the full complexity of, of reality. The, the truth is a masterpiece, but uh, in order for it to be a masterpiece, it does the the truth does have to be. In order for the truth to be a masterpiece and a and beautiful, it does have to take in all the complexity of the present moment um and and so yeah i th i think in the same way that uh, by cr expanding our consciousness for our own individual feelings leads to a healthier enga engagement with those feelings and the ability to assess them with a bit of cold d detachment uh, and non-attachment you know um allows us to assess them properly i think the same goes for moments like this where just a bit of um, engaging with the other side with non-attachment and trying to understand, well, why did they end up feeling that way? Uh, and why do I feel like this? And is there anything flawed in what I think? And I should view my own, you know, if there are people over there who are happy the queen is dead and I'm over here and I'm sad that the queen is dead, with non-attachment, can I explore both those standpoints? Why is it they're sad? And can I engage with that in a non-biased, uh, impassionate um, sense with an expanded awareness? And also my own, the fact that I'm sad that she's dead. Well, maybe that deserves some interrogation as well. well am I right to come to that? But the, only re the only way you can explore that is by being, um, having an expanded awareness and, and practicing non-attachment. Uh, nice words to finish one might be to discuss the five well one of the five mindfulness trainings um, and these are the well the five mindfulness trainings were developed I'm going to quote here from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh but the five mindfulness trainings were developed during the time of the Buddha to be the foundation of practice for the entire practice community including monastic and lay members um, the basis for the trainings is mindfulness the five mindfulness trainings 
protect our freedom and make life beautiful as guidelines for our daily lives. They are the basis of happiness for individuals, couples, families, and society. Um, now, there's there's obviously one about not destroying life uh, and protecting living things. That's one, that's one of the five mindfulness trainings, so not killing uh, animals um, and not letting others kill and not condone any act of killing the world. Uh, there's one about sexual misconducts, uh, intoxicants, um, the fourth mindfulness training is is this uh, aware to be aware of the suffering caused by unmindful speech and the inability to listen to others. I vow to cultivate loving speech and deep listening in order to bring joy and happiness to others and to relieve others of suffering. Knowing that words can create happiness or suffering, I vow to learn to speak truthfully with words that inspire self-confidence, joy and hope. I am determined not to spread news that I do not know, to be certain and not to criticize or condemn things of which I am not sure. Gosh, it's like Buddha was predicting fake news um, and social media in general. Uh, I will refrain from uttering words that can cause division or discord or words that can cause the family or the community to break. I will make all efforts to reconcile and resolve all conflicts, however small. I think, yeah, reading that, and as per, I think, episode two of this podcast, you know, we talked about social media is pretty much the antithesis in every single way of how we should be living our lives to be happy. Um, I think reading that, um, I think we can bring some of that to these more complex global discussions. And in doing so, I think we'll uh, learn a lot more because we'll have a more complex understanding because the, the universe, the, life is complex. It's definitely not simple. Um, and coming to these discussions saying well i'm this is the way my reaction is the right one and anyone else is wrong um only serves to generate the opposite effect of what that particular mindfulness training is aiming to achieve which is learning from each other um harmony uh, inspiring self-confidence joy and hope anyway that's been uh, that's everything <laughs> it's been a long and anyway, it's been a long chat uh thank you for indulging me and um yes i i went i went away for a, a long time a, a month you know so i've been off and I, I think before i went away i also didn't do a couple of episodes because i was preparing to go home so um thank you for letting me do a large dump in one and um, i look forward to chatting to you again in two weeks time and uh see how we go all right, thank you so much for your time and uh, look forward to talking again soon.